Good morning. Stand with me just a second. You'll see behind me on the screen the graphic that just gives you the outline for our service. We'll begin presently with a call to worship, but you'll see that we're not we're going to intersperse scripture reading with song. And so the basic rubric is that you don't need any coaching on this. You stand to sing and you sit for scripture. So that's sort of how we'll go this morning. But you're standing now, and before we enter into our time of worship in song, let's pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us here, be present in our worship, and be a sacrifice of praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
can have a seat. Our first reading is from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 24. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The word of the Lord. You can stand again.
I'll be reading from Acts chapter 22, uh, but first a little summary of what's transpired. Paul has just been arrested. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's been arrested thanks to a Jewish uproar in the temple area where he had accompanied some Jewish believers in their purification rites. He made a speech to the Jews that made them very angry, and now he's been flogged and questioned in the barracks. Picking it up in chapter 22, verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Chapter 23, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go back down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The word of the Lord. Please stand again.
the commander of the Roman troops in Jerusalem hears about a plot, a Jewish plot, to kill Paul. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison.
Well, this morning, I'm going to basically tell you a number of stories. One is one we've already or have been reading in bits and pieces in the book of Acts, and I want to parallel or tie a few other stories into that. So I figured if it's story time, it's a little bit more informal, I can just sort of sit down in my chair, and it's kind of gather round and have... Father, Dr. Enns, just <laughs> speak to you all, my children. <laughs> but before I do that, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're okay here? Good. Well, we're in the last chapel on our series of the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And the theme for today's chapel is what are the ways of the Holy Spirit when Christians seem to languish? And our reading thus far has brought us to a point in Paul's life where that seems to happen. Things are on track, first of all, for crisis, and then there's this promise in the midst of that that he's going to get to Rome, and then he's in Caesarea, and then all of a sudden the whole thing stalls. So let's just recap a little bit what this story is all about, because it covers quite a, a swatch of material. And it's, it's helpful to get in our minds what the whole sort of story is. And you could get pieces of the narrative that our scripture readers gave you. But let's try to stitch those pieces together. That brings us to the point where Paul's actually in Caesarea. So step one, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and he is in Ephesus and he's stopping. It's sort of a farewell tour. We also think that Paul very likely at this time may have been carrying this collection 
of finances that he had been raising for the longest time among the richer churches in Greece to take to the poor and impoverished churches in, the, in Judea, in the Jerusalem area. And so he's on his way, and at every stop, he gets reminded that what is happening, what awaits him in Jerusalem is not going to be pleasant, okay? He's been busy in Greece, he's been raising support, and Paul is obedient, even though the Spirit has shown him that what awaits him are imprisonment and persecution. It's kind of ominous, kind of an interesting parallel that Luke is painting for us here. Much like Luke, Paul's predecessor that Luke described in his gospel. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he knows what awaits him here. And there's a, a kind of an interesting parallel where Paul also is now on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows it's not very likely going to end happily for him. And so he gets at stage two or step two, we get the arrival in Jerusalem. And what was supposed to be a kind of a, a diplomatic sort of smoothing over of the waters, the assurance that, that Paul was no threat to the Jewish authorities goes sideways very, very quickly. He's in the temple. He's identified by, by some Jews as a rabble-rouser, a troublemaker, a traitor to his own people. These are very serious threats. He's accused of desecrating the temple, of actually bringing Jews, or sorry, actually bringing Greeks into a part of the temple that was for Jews only. And very quickly, as, as can often happen in a crowded temple situation, the, the rumor mill gets going, a mob forms, and everybody wants Paul's blood. They want this traitor's blood, so much so that the Roman guard has to be called out to intervene and bring peace and order very quickly. And so there's this intervention. Paul, because he is Paul and never wants to back down from a good challenge, asks permission to talk to the crowd. And so the centurion has tamed things by now, and he says, okay. And so Paul steps forward, and he begins to do what Paul does, and that is testify. Testify to a changed life in Christ. He shares his Damascus Road conversion experience. He testifies to the reality of the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrection is, is what keeps Paul on point time after time after time. And then he gets to the point where he gives, he tells them about his commission by Jesus that he is going to send him to the Gentiles. And for the crowd, that's a bridge too far. And they just say, say enough, that's, that's, you know, you're dragging Gentiles here, how dare you? And so mob violence erupts once again, and it's only with the intervention of the centurion and his military cohort that they're actually able to get Paul out of that situation and to relative safety. And there's a, there's a real ironic thing going on here, right? Where is Paul's safety? He's taken back to the military barracks of Rome for protection. And, and Rome, Roman soldiers, being Roman soldiers, they're doing what they're going to do best. They want to find, they want to get, get to the bottom of this. So Paul seems to be the troublemaker. Let's ask him. But they have a funny, well, not a funny way of asking. They have a very Roman way of asking. We'll lash him up and beat the ever-loving tar out of him, and then we'll ask him the questions that we want the answers to. And so they're about to do that. And Paul says, are you going to do this to a Roman citizen? And boy, does that change the picture in a hurry, right? 
centurion, he realizes all of a sudden he has come very close to committing a major, major infraction which could get him in a lot of trouble. And so he has Paul released. At least the initial situation is diffused. Paul plays his citizenship card there. And now the centurion says, okay, rather than beat first and ask questions later, maybe we can get this sorted out if we put you in front of the Jewish ruling council, because it has to do with a dust-up between you and the Jewish leadership. So let's summon them together, let's stick you in there, and let's see what happens. And so Paul realizes he is in the middle of a very hostile room. Right? Got some Sadducees, got some Pharisees, but the jury's pretty much stacked against him. But he knows one thing. He knows, being a Pharisee, that the Pharisees are about the resurrection and the Sadducees are not. So, sort of throwing the cat among the pigeons, he says, well, folks, today I am on trial for the resurrection. And very quickly, the Pharisees go, yeah, yeah, he's our guy, right? And the Sadducees go, no, no, there's no such thing as a resurrection. And the Pharisees are sort of, they're, they're tossing him back and forth. It's, you know, they might not like Paul, but all of a sudden, Paul is their guy. It's a little reminiscent of a situation, well, probably several situations, but uh, <laughs> back in the 60s, uh, United States President Lyndon Johnson, who came in the wake of Kennedy's assassination, was, uh, an, he, he was a notoriously good deal maker as a president. And at some point, he would have a nomination for a key posting. And this posting might be very important, whether it was a justice or a, a key cabinet post. And he knew he was putting forward an unpopular guy, even by his own parties, the Democrats' standards. But he would work the phones, and he'd get on the, the phones to the various members of the House committees that had the approval or had the, uh, were part of the hearing process for approving this particular appointment. And, and, the, and he knew he was going to encounter resistance from his own party, but he would say, okay, yes, I, I know he's not a very nice guy. He used a somewhat less savory term. No, he's an SOB. But remember, he's our SOB. <laughs> And that's a little like what's happening here, right? Paul, he's, he, might, he might not like him, but he's a Pharisee. He's our Pharisee. And so we're going to defend him. And the whole thing, of course, degenerates into Bedlam. But at least Paul manages to escape what would have been probably a very disastrous hearing for him. And so again, Rome has to intervene. Once again, Caesar is coming to the aid of the gospel. How, how deliciously ironic, Right? Paul is, a, is under protective guard of the centurion. Caesar is giving King Jesus protection. It's great. And I think Luke is really enjoying telling us about this in Acts. So we get to stage four. Paul is in the military barracks. I think I want to advance a slide here, see what happens. No, nope, that's too far ahead. Let's keep. Okay, so we're in, we're in 23 here. And even though there's been this, this high adventure and Paul knows that he has walked into something that he has been forewarned about, it seems that even Paul, as, and we get the sense that he was a really, you know, Paul was a tough guy, he, he, he could endure lots, and yet Paul has his moments of weakness. He, he, he has his moments of not necessarily self-doubt, but I think fear 
and despair. After all, I mean, he has been through the ringer in his life. He knows what it's like to get beaten up. If we read his, his, his persecution CV in 2 Corinthians, you know, he says, I've been whipped 40 lashes minus one five times. I've been beaten with rods three times. I've been stoned and left for dead once. I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been hounded by bandits. I've been preyed on in the city, in the countryside. You name it. Paul has been there. And it seems that at least at this point that those experiences haven't made Paul braver, but they've given him a sort of a sense of, oh no, not again. And so Luke tells us, that Paul gets the assurance that he needs. And it's, it's this very direct presence, this very direct visitation of God. And just this phrase, you know, he stands near him and he assures him that this isn't going to be it, that, that you're not, this isn't going to end in death and disaster. We're going to get to Rome. Just hang in there. Take courage. Now, first of all, I'm going to take a drink of what you all think is water. <laughs> it is, if you want to come and do the taste test afterwards. Not liquid courage. I don't know if any of you have had a, a sort of a direct encounter. Like Luke doesn't even describe it as a vision. He says God stood near him. There's this, this immediate presence that Paul somehow seems to need. And I was casting about in my own experience for something that would be like that. When did God come alongside me at times of despair and discouragement? And, I, and one, one experience came to mind. It was, it was, it's still crystal clear in my mind today. I was an 18-year-old kid. Just my first time away from home, I was at Cape Henry Bible School up in uh, Carnforth, or just outside Carnforth up in England, and, uh, you know, a young teenage kid, and some, I can't even remember what had happened. I think I had some kind of a falling out with a friend, and some kind of a relationship that had just sort of gone on the rocks, and all of a sudden I was really homesick and felt very alone, very frustrated, and maybe a little bit betrayed. And, and I, I was just kind of pouring out my soul to God and saying, what, what is going on here? I don't even know if I should be here. And so that evening, during, we would have two uh, evening session lectures in the mass conference hall. And I sat at the very back on an aisle row. And so I was just, I, I'd come there a little early. I was just sitting there and, and probably feeling a little bit sorry, a lot sorry for myself but just mulling over what had happened and, and, and feeling in the depths of despair. Well, not the depths, but feeling very, very depressed and, and distraught. And as people were coming in, and it came time for the session to, to be called to order for our first teaching session, in, in about the space of about two minutes, three different students passed by me. They were, they were students that I knew, but weren't necessarily close friends, and they were on their way to their seats up at the front. The one was a young married uh, husband. He came by, and he just touched me on the shoulder. Didn't, didn't look at me. No words were exchanged. It was just a tap and going on. A few seconds later, young woman comes by, gives me a tap on the shoulder. This never happened, right? Third time, 
You know, good, good Trinitarian theology here, right? <laughs> just to say, this wasn't a coincidence. Another student came in and just gave me a tap on his way. On his t- they had no idea what they were doing. Perhaps just casual friendship acknowledgement. But that, as a rule, that didn't happen. And yet, boy, I tell you, at, at that minute, well, it was like God talking to me. And it was special. And he gave me that which I needed to be assured that things were going to be okay. There was going to be a reconciliation with this relationship. And sure enough, there was. So God gives us that which we need for the circumstances we're in. And I think just as Paul had it in a very dramatic way, I had it perhaps in a less dramatic way. It was just as real. Those people were Jesus to me. Well, anyway, we press on. So, stage five, there's a plot to assassinate Paul. It's discovered by his young nephew, the, uh, the guard of, uh, or the centurion and his cohort are informed, and very quickly to diffuse what, is going, what seems to be escalating into an extremely violent situation, which is not going to look good on the centurion's CV. So he wants to pass Paul up the line as quickly as possible, get him out of Dodge. And so there are 40 Jews that have taken, they, they've come together and they've formed a 40-man hit squad, and they're going to kill Paul, and they're not going to eat until they get to do the deed. This is found out. Rome's response, we aren't just going to match you person for person. We are going to make sure that you don't even dare try this. So 70 cavalry, 200 spearmen, 200 regular infantry, 470 people, armed guard, and they're going to take Paul up to Caesarea. 40 guys against that, not a chance, right? So here again, God is looking after his own, and Paul suddenly finds himself in the regional capital of Caesarea Maritima. Now, that's Caesarea Maritima today. It's on the coast. Um, it's a lot of ruins there. That was now. That is now. Here's a mock-up of what they think it looked like back then. It was a city built by Herod the Great, and it was a massive monument to his own ego and his ambitions. He built a a sort of -of state-of-the-art harbor. He had all the, the sort of amenities that a Roman city would have. So it was like a major port, kind of like San Francisco, and yet a kind of a playground. So San Francisco meets Las Vegas, right? For the rich and famous, sort of a club med on the coast. And here is where the governor has his seat, and it's where Paul ends up. Paul comes there, and he is put up in Herod's Praetorium. Now, it's not standing today, but this is just a little picture of Herod's, a part of Herod's Praetorium. Herod didn't do things by half measures either. This is what remains of it, and that is a freshwater swimming pool that looked out on the beach. Now, I don't know if Paul had access to the pool, but... (laughs) He doesn't seem to be in, in, in really bad digs, okay? So all of us, and he's sort of under house arrest. Felix receives him, puts him under house arrest, wants to find out what's going on. The plot to assassinate Paul has long gone, and now he awaits a trial. So it seems like sort of things are on task. God has assured him, we're going to go there, we're going to get to Rome, and then the thing just sort of stalls. 
Felix is not interested in getting Paul to Rome. He wants a bribe from Paul. He's trying to, he's, he's just a typical cynical politician. Maybe I can get, you know, maybe you can get, what's, what's your freedom worth to you, Paul? You want to negotiate? And so he calls Paul frequently and is kind of interested in him, but not too interested, especially when he starts preaching about the resurrection. And then he says, no, no more. And he, so he just lets him, lets him languish. And Luke tells us very quickly that this is what happened for two years. And then desiring to do the Jews a favor, he just leaves him in prison and heads back to Rome when he's recalled. And so what's happening here? Where is the Spirit? We don't know what happened during these years of standstill. There's no, Luke doesn't give us much of a description. But what we do know is that, or it seems, there's no miracles. There's no conversion. Felix doesn't suddenly have a come-to-Jesus moment. Uh, there's no healings like there was in Ephesus, where Paul's shadow is falling across people and they're coming to faith, they're being healed. There's no massive revival. It's just Paul in prison, languishing, waiting. Waiting for what? And it seems that Paul is willing to move, not at his own pace, but at God's pace. Ironically, prison is about the safest place for Paul to be right about now, because if he did get free, the Jews would probably kill him. They've got a, they've got a price out on his head. And so we have two years of probably nothing but mundane, ordinary stuff. He can see visitors, but he's under house arrest. His movement is restricted. And so what does Paul do when he's not out doing the spectacular work of ministry? What does ministry look like in the ordinary humdrum of routine? People who served in the trenches in World War I basically defined their experiences like this, it was long stretches of boredom punctuated by bursts of pure terror. And maybe it might not be bursts of pure terror, but oftentimes that's what ministry is, isn't it? It's long stretches of doing ordinary mundane stuff with a few bursts of kind of adrenaline on, you know, in the spotlight activity. And perhaps these, during these long stretches, what are we doing? How is the spirit at work when we're tempted to just sort of think, what's it all about? Where is this going? So what's Paul doing during these two years of house arrest? What's the spirit up to? Well, I want to make one informed guess. So it's, it's a bit of eisegesis here, but I think I'm on pretty safe territory based on what we know about Paul from elsewhere. Paul, in one word, is practicing. Now, I'm going to switch from a military metaphor to a sports metaphor. Paul is practicing at being a Christian. Paul used not only military metaphors, but he used athletic metaphors as well to talk about what the gospel was like. And for every minute an athlete or a team is in the crucible of competition, there are hours and hours of practice. The spotlight comes on at certain times, and we're there, we're the spectators, when we're marveling at, at athletic prowess, and we're cheering, and we're caught up in the, in the match. But how many people show up and cheer at practices? It's pretty ordinary, isn't it? Pretty, pretty mundane. Practices are routine. They're about repetition. They're about gaining muscle memories. They're about working on the specific fundamentals of your sport, uh, technical skills. 
You, you perform tasks over and over again so that when you're fatigued and in the heat of competition, your muscle memory is just so ingrained, you don't have to think about it, you just do it. Well, maybe that's what Paul is doing. Maybe he is practicing for what he knows is going to be at some point a command performance. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. U.S. Air Force pilot, Colonel George, I'm going to read this because it's a great story. Colonel George Robert Hall was shot down over North Vietnam on September 27, 1965. He was taken prisoner by the Viet Cong and placed in horrendous conditions as a POW. Besides periods of interrogation, torture, and deprivation, solitary confinement for months on end, most of his time was spent in a prison cell about seven and a half square feet in dimension. That's not a lot of real estate, folks. For long periods of, t of time, that cell defined his world. In order to resist the physical and mental breakdown his captors desired, George Hall decided to create a parallel world in his imagination and focus on it as if it were the real world and not his prison cell. There he was, staying in the infamous Hanoi Hilton. That's what they called it. Now, Hall was an avid golfer. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with golf, we're just going to do a little bit of a refresh or a little bit of primer here on golf. What is golf? Golf is a game where you take a very little ball like this, and you tee it up at one end of a very long grassy stretch, and then you take an assortment of clubs, one that might look like this sort of hybrid club here, and you strike that ball from the tee down to the green into the, into the pin, which is marked by the flag. And you want to do that in as few strokes as possible. A short hole, say one that is under 250 yards or so long, is considered that these, these holes have standard scores that expert golfers are supposed to be able to achieve. It's called par. So short holes are basically par threes, holes from 250 to about 470 are par fours, and everything over 270s are par fives. So if you take that, and then you impose that over uh, a golf course like this, this is an aerial view of Augusta National where the Masters is played, over 18 holes, and you total up par, your most courses are going to come in somewhere about 70 or 71 strokes. This is for an expert golfer. And if you can consistently golf at par, you're called a scratch golfer. Now, if you consistently hit or uh, have a round over par, that's called your handicap. Now, Colonel Hall had a fairly low handicap. He wasn't a scratch golfer. He was a four-handicap golfer, which is pretty darn good on some of the best courses of the world. So, that was before he was shot down in Vietnam. On the course that he would then, what he, what he began to do then, is during his confinement, Hall used his mental visualization skills to develop a virtual golf course in his mind. Perhaps one like Augusta National in the state of Georgia, or one maybe that had scenic holes like this. Uh, I think this one's in Arizona somewhere, Sedona 
or perhaps a scenic hole like that at TPC Sawgrass down in Florida, that island green. One of his favorite golf courses was a course in California called Pebble Beach, which runs, has a lot of beautiful scenic holes along the Pacific Ocean. And so what he did is he put himself either in his home course or at Pebble Beach. And he would play, he determined in his cell, he would play a round of golf every day. He meticulously put on his pants, his shirt, his socks. He had cool golfing styles, maybe like that. You know, golfers are notoriously bad fashion plates. At least they used to be. And then he would pick up his bag of clubs after he, had his, after he dressed himself, and he would head to the course. And he's doing this all in this seven-and-a-half-foot square cell. He would go through his warm-ups, stretching, and then he would walk to the first tee, and then tee up his ball, take his club. He actually could feel it in his hand, very meticulously, technically correct, go into his backstroke, swing, hit the ball, visualize it, put his bag, put his uh, club back in his bag, walk on, come to his next hole, take out his club, and play it. He played a round of 18 every day for seven and a half years. But during this time, of course, he's being tortured. He's on a diet of about 300 calories a day, and he's losing weight. And yet, that was his world. He was determined not to succumb to the realities around him, and he played in golf every day in this world. He was eventually released after seven and a half years of confinement in February of 73. At that time, he was 100 pounds under his normal weight from starvation and nutrition. And one of the first things he went asked, what does he want to do? He wants to go play golf. So he arrived back to the U.S. He was given a hero's welcome. Less than six weeks after his release, he got his chance to play. It was at a pro-amateur event the New Orleans POW Open on March 21st, 1973. And finally, after seven and a half years, Hall got to play his first round of golf with a real ball and real clubs. 100 pounds under his weight. What did he shoot? On a par 70 course with a four handicap? He shot a 74. Pretty amazing, hey? All because he had been practicing. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. He was practicing what Pastor David Fitch calls the discipline of faithful presence. Celebrating communion, table fellowship with other Christians, studying, proclaiming the good news, praying, no doubt fasting, caring as he could as he had opportunity for the socially marginalized, witnessing to other prisoners, practicing reconciliation, ministering to the most needy. And then when Felix is replaced by Governor Festus, all of a sudden he gets a call to come and stand before a court of royalty. He gets his moment. And what does he do? He does what he's practicing. Gives his testimony, proclaims the resurrection, invites people to follow Christ. Now we don't know if there was any change as a result of that. But what Paul was doing was being faithful to the Spirit's calling, and he's fulfilling that prophecy that Jesus warned his followers would encounter, that they would be dragged before kings and tribunals and powers, and they would be given an opportunity to witness. And when Paul has his moment, he's ready because he's been practicing. The Holy Spirit is not idle. 
But he's been at work preparing Paul and then enabling Paul when that moment comes along. And I think there are times when we're tempted to believe we're languishing and God is busy elsewhere. Ministry is a grind and we feel like we might be in some kind of prison of our own routines, spiritually stalled. I think Paul saw this as practice time. He was safe from death threats. He wasn't getting beaten up. His body could heal. He could practice being a Christian so that when the time came for a bigger stage and the Spirit said, hey, it's game on, he was ready. And so may we be as well. Faithful to know God's presence, faithful to practice, and then faithful to witness. Come ahead, musicians. Let's close with a song of invitation that God would come and visit us again. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Just get the final slide up there. Good. 
One more. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen.